You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, we'll hear from Peter Navarro, director of the White House Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, and Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester, national co-chair of the Biden campaign. Let's listen. Good afternoon. It's Friday. Just a few days before the election, I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at the Washington Post. Welcome back to Post Live in our election daily program. Really appreciate you being here. We're trying to provide you with up-to-the-minute news, the latest headlines, everything that's going on at 1 p.m. Eastern every day on Washington Post Live Monday through Friday. And for our program today, I will talk with two guests, Dr. Peter Navarro, the White House Director of Trade and manufacturing policy. We'll later be joined by Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware, a Democrat. Uh, Congresswoman Blunt Rochester is the national co-chair of the Biden campaign. And Jenna Johnson, who I've known for years, she reported on Trump campaign activities and voters back in 2016. Now she's paying attention to Democrats in Texas and Latino voters. We'll get an update from her at the end of this program, and uh, at least at the end of my interview with Dr. Navarro. But before we get to Dr. Navarro, just a few quick headlines to get you up to speed. Uh, The big thing to pay attention to is travel. Travel reveals a lot about politics. Why are people making decisions to go certain places? And the Midwest is the battleground. We hear a lot about the Deep South. We hear about the Sun Belt. And there's no doubt, those are areas that are competitive. But If you look at today, President Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden, they're going to the Midwest today, Friday. Both will be in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Biden will also be in Iowa. President Trump will go to Michigan. Uh, Vice President Pence will be in Arizona, speaking of the Sun Belt. And Democratic VP nominee Senator Harris, she will go to Texas, again, the Sun Belt. So you have the, the nominees in the Midwest, the VPs in the Sun Belt, Arizona and Texas. The one headline that stands out to me in the post today is in the final stretch, the Biden campaign seeking the voters who stayed home in 2016. We've talked this week about Senator Harris reaching out to those Bernie Sanders voters that the Biden campaign needs to not just pull those moderates in the suburbs, not just stoke traditional Democrats in the cities. It needs to have the voters who's maybe sat on their hands in 2016, the Sanders voters, to come out. And you've seen the Biden campaign for months try to balance its overtures to the center with its overtures to the left. And one other thing, one other headline is the president's pretty superstitious. Uh, He is going to have his final rally uh, on Election Day, uh, Election Eve, excuse me, Monday night in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you are a political junkie, you remember he went to Grand Rapids in 2016. It looks like the White House will be the setting for where the president is. He won't be in New York City. He won't be at the Trump Hotel in Washington. That seems to be a fluid situation uh, based on the president's comments to reporters this morning. But it looks like the White House, just like it was for the Republican National Convention, could be the setting for election night. Now let's bring in Dr. Peter Navarro, the president's top advisor on trade. He joined the Trump administration early on working on trade policy. He's an antagonist of China, if I might say, Dr. Navarro, great to have you here. Mr. Costa, how are you, sir? 
Doing well. You look marvelous in your office there. How do you think trade plays into this campaign? I know you're a policy man, but you you pay attention to trade as a political issue as well. Is this something the president is going to hit in the final few days? Uh, trade's one of the keys uh, to unlocking uh, the Midwest battleground states. Uh, if you go uh, across, for example, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, you understand if you're a blue collar worker that Joe Biden voted for NAFTA in 1994. Joe Biden voted for China into the World Trade Organization. You have institutional memory um, from you and your family of how we lost over 70,000 factories and over 5 million manufacturing jobs to Joe Biden's NAFTA, to Joe Biden's uh, courtship of China. And the president has, as you know, been the toughest president ever to stand up to China. And we have the backing of the rank and file as we did in 2016. But Mr. Costa, there's other things going on over and above that. Hey, I've Peter, been doing just a fairly to, deep. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just you say he's been very tough on China. I spoke to Larry Kudlow, your colleague yesterday, who did not make any kind of statement about coming tariffs on China over the pandemic. With respect, if he's so tough, why haven't further tariffs been announced on China due to the pandemic? Uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let you and Larry have your conversations. I mean, what I know about Donald J. Trump uh, is that we've got tariffs on over $325 billion worth of Chinese goods. We put sanctions uh, on China for its human rights abuses in Xinjiang province. Uh, we took away all favorable treatment for Hong Kong after the Chinese Communist Party brutally crushed uh, dissent. Uh, we've run freedom of navigation patrols relentlessly in the South China Sea. We've worked closely uh, with Japan uh, to solidify alliances there. Um, so the, the idea that, um, that, the, that the president hasn't been tough enough on China, um, I think that's, that's, um, that's a non-starter, and I think the people of America know that. But, but let me just say this, because we, we are, yes, this is time, Bob, for closing arguments, and, and I think you want to know, boots on the ground, what we're doing and what our expectation is. And trade and manufacturing is crucial uh, to winning um, the the, uh, the Midwest, uh, and there's some other things going on. What if about the look, pandemic, um, Peter? You've been a fierce critic yeah, well, of Dr. Fauci. You know, Bob. Bob, every time I try to talk about what what we're doing and what they're thinking about, you're interrupting me. To I don't mean to interrupt. Like, I just want to cover this few, cover some ground. Let, here. let me just. Let me let me cover this ground, and then and then and then you can hit me with another question because I think for your viewers this is what's important. Um, we have a, a six pillar strategy for growing the economy uh, that dates back to 2016: deregulation, tax cuts, free trade, defense spending increases, strategic energy dominance, things like that. And so trade, of course, uh, is crucial to winning uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. But if you go, if I go like the other things like defense spending, um, 
Obama-Biden cut defense spending by 16% as a tremendous blow to combat readiness. Uh, what we've done is dramatically increase defense spending. If you go across the battlegrounds, I mean, I was in Wisconsin a few days ago, went to the Marinette Shipyard, which is very vibrant and booming. Oshkosh builds combat vehicles. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going to really uh, draw strong support for the president. If you go to Michigan, the Stryker plant in Sterling Heights, um, if you go to Pennsylvania, we literally saved uh, the York combat vehicle plant um, when Obama-Biden basically tried to put it into the ground. And my office um, really uh, played a, a, an important role reviving uh, the Philly shipyard. And so, so that's a beautiful thing. So trade, manufacturing, defense. Then you move to the strategic energy dominance. The cornerstone of that Bob, is, is fracking. And if you look at Michigan and Pennsylvania, you've got 18,000 fracking wells across right. the Antrim Shale Formation in Michigan and the Marcellus Shale Formation in Pennsylvania. On top of that, uh, frac sand, um, which is a critical element of the process, is mined uh, in Wisconsin in the western part. That, hundreds and of thousands Peter, more jobs there. So my point here is that no i got your point energy all of that's going to help us win issues. those ba energy trade defense spending deregulation i mean what we're well, what about we, peter we started peter, with we, you're going peter what about yeah. the pandemic i i, I want to turn to the house democrats who are investigating you and your own efforts in terms of the pandemic and getting ppe it's under investigation what's your response to that ongoing investigation <laughs> the Democrats investigate whatever. I, I really don't care what they do. What I, what I can tell you, I want, I want to finish one thing um, and then I'll address the pandemic issues. Um, besides, but Do you think you're in any legal dominance, jeopardy there? No, but no. Besides the strategic energy dominance, we're also seeking strategic mining dominance. And this is critical uh, in Minnesota in particular. I, I was there a couple of days ago. Uh, there's a thing called the Duluth Complex, which is part of the Iron Range. Uh, it has the largest resources uh, untapped of copper and nickel and cobalt. And Obama-Biden had shut that down effectively during their administration. We're opening that back up. Uh, nickel uh, is critical to electrification of cars. Um, they call them lithium batteries, but the largest uh, ingredient really is nickel. Minnesota has really high-grade nickel. Uh, the cobalt is really essential to our defense industrial base because it alloys with steel and allows much higher temperatures without uh, the degradation uh, of the metal. So strategic Peter, mining dominance Peter, I appreciate, in Minnesota, Peter, I appreciate Arizona, those points about and mining. Nevada. Peter, with, Peter, this is my Peter, closing argument, Peter, Bob. Peter, respectfully. If you wanna, like, if Peter, you wanna, Peter. Okay, Peter, respectfully. Go ahead. Peter. Yes, sir. Peter. I've, I've given you time to go through mining okay. policy, energy policy, indeed, and, uh, defense okay. policy, and trade right. policy. You've hit right. four, throw, throw, Peter. You've hit four key now. issues. No, I've gone, go I would like to bring up the the pandemic, Peter. You've been at the forefront of the central issue yeah. of this campaign, going back to your memos to colleagues and President Trump earlier in 2020. What is your read right now? on the pandemic. You've been studying this for over a year. And Dr. It's Fauci says it's getting worse. So what is the Navarro take? 
what my, my take is that what we need to do is, is very carefully thread a needle uh, between uh, a lockdown uh, and the managing the risks of keeping the economy open. And here's what's well, here's the way we see it. We know two things. We know that the virus from the Chinese Communist Party, they infected us. Um, it kills people. Uh, we also know that when you go to a lockdown, that kills people as well. It does so in different ways, whether it's depression and suicide or denial of chemotherapy or anything in between. What we've done, uh, and this goes back to my memos you mentioned, Bob, uh, February 9th, I started writing a series of memos which outlined on behalf of the president what has become our four vector attack strategy to defeat the communist China virus. Um, it's simply this, it's the domestic onshoring of our PPE, our gloves, our goggles, our N95 respirators. We've had great success on that, standing up factories in places like um, uh, Rhode Island and Arizona uh, with the Honeywell Company. Uh, secondly, we got testing. The initial thrust there, Bob, was to greatly expand the amount of testing we could do, but over time, more subtly, it was to steadily reduce the amount of time it took to get the results and also extend our reach to point of care, and we've at that point. The third vector I think is the most important. This is therapeutics, and in many ways, therapeutics are as or more important than a vaccine in the short and medium run. Uh, because this is a way of drastically driving down the mortality rate if you do get sick. Um, this is the things like uh, two things that the president took, remdesivir uh, and monoclonal antibodies, uh, but there's also things like convalescent plasma. We've done that really well. And then finally, uh, I remember uh, February 9th, I wrote a memo to the task force. It said, uh, uh, among other things, we, if we started a five-company horse race on vaccine development that week, we could have a vaccine by the end of November or early December. And we are actually tracking that. We've got a good chance of doing that. And, and there's people, uh, and this is something, Bob, the doctors, I don't think really understand how, how the Trump administration works. The doctors are skeptical about whether we can get large quantities of this vaccine to the American people. But what we've done is, is turn the standard paradigm on its head. Usually you go sequentially, you go uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, you got a vaccine, then you start your investment in production capacity and it takes can take a year or two or more. That's not what we did. We did a simultaneous process where for all five of the vaccines we put in place mass production te techniques so that if that vaccine becomes viable, we're ready to deploy. So I believe uh, dating back to January 31st when the president pulled down the flights from China, over time, what have we done? We've implemented this four vector attack strategy and we filled the strategic national stockpile and made it smarter. So um, speaking of that, that stockpile, uh, what happened yeah. to all that hydroxychloroquine the administration acquired under your watch? Uh, that's a great question, Bob. The, the first thing that happened was was publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times uh, and, and then CNN created um, what was unfortunately a hydroxy hysteria. The most recent Peter, study Peter, that it, hang Peter, on, it was the Fed Food and Drug no, no, Administration. No, 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 no. Let me finish, Food and Drug Bob. Administration. 
Bob, Bob, do not interrupt me on this. Let me just finish this point. The latest study that has come out on this has shown unequivocally that hydroxychloroquine works in early treatment to save lives. And here's what I can tell you. We got 63 million tablets of hydroxychloroquine sitting in the strategic national stockpile. That's enough for 4 million Americans treated in early treatment, and that's enough to cut the death rate of people infected by 20 to 30,000 American lives. And to me, one of the biggest tragedies of this whole politicization uh, of the pandemic has been the suppression of the use of a $12 drug that could have saved countless lives. So if you're asking me what about the hydroxychloroquine, it's sitting there not saving lives because the mainstream media created a hysteria about it when the science now, Bob, the science is unequivocal. It works in early treatment to save lives, full stop. Peter, would you acknowledge that, you could say what you want, critical of the mainstream media. And I just did. No, wait, and, and that's fine. That's fine. But, yeah. Peter, it was the Food and Drug Administration, not a newspaper, that decided to keep it away from patients due to concerns. Is that right or wrong? It's more subtle than that. I, I think what we have with the Food and Drug Administration uh, is a response in many ways to that hydroxy hysteria. There was an interaction. They maintain that people can still use hydroxychloroquine. What happened was uh, they just created a climate where it made it much more difficult. People became afraid to use it. Here, I'm telling you and the American people that this is a medicine that the latest scientific evidence shows that it's safe and that it can help save lives. And so we'll see. I Look, um, we got a couple of days of the election. We can keep having this debate, but I will guarantee you Maybe you and I can sit down in three or six or nine months uh, when the science is, is, is fully in and maybe there's a randomized clinical trial. And you'll see, Bob, that, that, that we could have saved probably hundreds of thousands of Americans at the end of the day if we had simply deployed that uh, early in early treatment. And look, people can disagree about it. You can say whatever you want next, but that's, uh, that's the way I see it. And there's plenty of evidence to support that. Do you believe the president will keep Stephen Hahn as the FDA commissioner after the election? I, I, you know, all I'm focused on right now, like a laser beam, um, is is Tuesday uh, from a policy perspective. I really fear, Bob, looking at uh, the possible outcome uh, with the Biden-Harris ticket coming in uh, that we could have, as the president has said, a Great Depression. Now, why do I say that? Um, Again, it gets back to what Peter, what's your evidence for that? I'm going to give that to you. Um, <clears throat> what we do here is, is those points of the policy compass. We believe that tax cuts stimulate growth. Joe Biden will raise taxes. We believe that when you deregulate, that lowers the cost of our businesses, makes us more competitive. That helps us grow. Biden uh, will increase regulations as he did um, in the Obama administration. If you look at uh, the strategic energy dominance we've attained, where we're now the largest petroleum producer in the world and a net exporter, uh, clearly over time under Obama, uh, Biden-Harris, that's going to go away. That will basically uh, create national security issues as well as uh, diminish um, our growth. If you look at the issue of defense spending, but I can't 
Uh, don't underestimate this. In a lot of ways, our defense production during this pandemic has helped stabilize our economy because, you know, the places I've I've gone and visited, you know, Oshkosh or the shipyards or wherever, they're still producing. And these are great paying jobs. You know that uh, uh, Biden-Harris will cut defense spending, and that's really going to harm uh, the states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, so that's no good. And then, look, look last of all, Bob. But Peter, uh, trade. you name one. Hey, let me just finish it. I mean, you know, you know that Biden was responsible uh, for voting for NAFTA. He voted for China getting into the World Trade Organization. Um, he's been uh, very sympathetic to China. He doesn't think they're going to quote eat our lunch. Will he? These are questions. Will he roll back the China tariffs? Will he roll back the steel and aluminum tariffs? If he does any of that. I mean, just forget about manufacturing in this country. They lost 200,000 manufacturing jobs in their watch. As of January 2020, uh, before the China virus hit, we had up uh, half uh, 500,000. So um, elections have consequences. And I, I do believe, um, and this is kind of what I did for years before I got here, I, I, as I was a forecaster, I do believe that, that, that uh, Joe Biden's uh, dark winter is ahead um, if Peter, he winds up Peter, in the though, office. Peter, dark winter, you use the term Great Depression. Can you name one economist beyond your, yourself, your uh, PhD, can you name anyone else who's using that term Great Depression with any kind of seriousness about the Biden economic plan? Let me, let me turn that around. It's like when, when I was the president's top economic advisor in the campaign, I said that we were going to have growth way above Congressional Budget Office estimates, and I, I predicted the day after the election, 25,000 on the Dow. I was absolutely correct. What was Paul Krugman doing, a Nobel Prize laureate? He was writing that if Trump got elected, we'd have a Great Depression. I, I stand by my forecasting, Bob. I predicted, uh, I had an investment newsletter uh, and in new, November of 2007, I told everybody to get out of the market because the, the market was going to crash. I predicted the housing bubble. And back in 2006, Bob, you know what? I wrote a book called The Coming China Wars. And in that, I predicted that communist China would create a pandemic that could possibly kill millions. Uh, I, I wrote a book in 1984 called The Dimming of America that predicted widespread electricity shortages in 2000. And guess what? That's exactly what we had. So um, <laughs> ignore my forecasts at your peril based on my track record. I'm telling you, we're in for hard economic times ahead if Joe Biden gets elected. He'll cut defense spending. He'll raise taxes. He'll turn off the oil wells. He'll regulate us out of business. And he'll go back to the old globalist ways of shipping our supply chains offshore. And why do I know that? What proof do I have is because that's what he did for 47 friggin' years. That's what he did. You know that. I know that. Well, he has a record. I would so just do we. thank Dr. Navarro. I really appreciate you being here. I would just, those are your points and people can take them as, as they are. I would urge our audience, our, our viewers today to also check out the Washington Post reporting on President Trump's economic agenda and plan and on Vice President Biden's economic proposals, lowering the corporate tax rate and other things that go beyond the issues Peter mentioned, but to also read more fully about President Trump's record as well. Uh, and Peter, 
Uh, you're always welcome to be here to discuss your point of view. I appreciate you coming by. Good, good to talk to you, Bob. You take care of yourself. Let's see what happens on Tuesday. We're all friends. One country. Thanks for being here, Peter. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Bye. Thank you. We will now be joined by my colleague, Jenna Johnson, political reporter for The Washington Post. Jenna, great to have you here. Hey, it's so good to see you. Jenna, you've been reporting on Texas and the Democrats for years now. I remember your stories on Beto O'Rourke in 2018 when he was running for Senate. He narrowly lost that race to Senator Ted Cruz. Now it's 2020, two years later. What's changed for Democrats in a place like Texas? Yeah, I've been fascinated by Texas for quite a while now. And the big thing that's been happening for years there is there's a demographics change happening. There are a lot of people who are moving to Texas. Uh, by one estimate, every day, a thousand people move to Texas from places like California, New York, Florida, Illinois. A lot of them are Democrats. They just bring their political beliefs with them. At the same time, it's a young state. You have a lot of people who are turning 18 and qualifying to vote, including a lot of Latinos. Um, young Latinos, maybe their parents didn't have the right to vote, but they do and they can be a force. So for a long time, Democrats thought, you know, maybe in 2024, we could win statewide in Texas. That's been kind of the, the year that they were looking at. Beto O'Rourke sped that up. <laughs> and not just Beto O'Rourke, President Trump sped that up. In addition to these demographic changes, you also have a lot of, uh, or you have a number of Republicans or some right-leaning independents uh, who are willing to vote for a Democrat right now, who are fed up with the president and are willing to do something a little different. Jenna, what about Latino voters in Texas and elsewhere? When you think about President Trump's closing argument at the final debate against Vice President Biden, he talked about the Obama-Biden record on immigration, trying to almost share the burden of immigration policy with Vice President Biden. Is Vice President Biden breaking through with Latino voters in the way he needs to to win the election? Well, listen, for months, Latino activists, Latino lawmakers, Latino organizers have been yelling at the Biden campaign saying, you need to do more to reach out to Latino voters. Um, they were on track to be the second largest voting group um, after white voters this election. Um, and the Biden campaign has done some reach out, but a lot of it's happened just in these final months, final weeks of the campaign. Meanwhile, you have the Trump campaign that has really heavily focused on Latino voters uh, for months now, uh, for years. Uh, and it's not that Trump thinks that he's gonna win the Latino vote. A majority of Latinos are still siding with Biden and with Democrats. But in states that are decided by really small uh, margins, like in Florida, in Pennsylvania, um, if, if President Trump can pick up a few more Latino voters there, um, that can be the deciding thing. Um, and again, one of the big things with Biden and the Latino community is immigration. Now, immigration isn't the only issue that Latinos care about. It isn't necessarily the top issue that Latinos care about. Um, but this was a really big problem for the Obama administration. There were a lot of people who were deported during that time. And while the Obama administration did create DACA and do some other things, mm -hmm. there are some lasting bad feelings about what happened. 
and a lot of questions about if Biden has actually addressed that or not. Jenna, finally, to go back to 2016 and, and your chronicles of Trump voters across the country, you've kept tabs on them for nearly four years, over four years now, going back to the campaign of 2016. In a collective sense, where is that Trump voter uh, that you met who maybe was at a diner or in a, a rural area or working class town? Where are they today? Just as we head into this final weekend, what have you learned over the past week or two, but also over the past couple of years? That's a really great question. Um, a majority of those Trump supporters are still with the president. Um, there is something about supporting this president that is bigger than politics. Uh, it's cultural in a way. I've talked with a lot of uh, Trump supporters over the years who said, you know, they voted for him kind of on a whim in 2016, but they're really excited to vote for him in 2020. Um, they really believe that he has gotten a lot done. They really believe in him. Um, and sometimes those conversations can be um, a little uncomfortable because as a reporter, you're asking, for specific examples of how their lives have gotten better. Um, for Trump supporters who are Jenna living in rural her. areas, there's not necessarily a lot of evidence there. There have been a tariff war, uh, pandemics coming through, um, but they love him and uh, they really believe in him. Jenna Johnson, congratulations on another terrific cycle of reporting. Thanks for stopping by to sharing your insights. It's appreciated. Thank you, Bob. We are now joined by the national co-chair of the Biden campaign, Delaware Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester. Representative Blunt Rochester, great to have you here on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Very excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. So uh, I grew up not far from Delaware in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know Pennsylvania is just across uh, the state line. Uh, Right. In that area, in Delaware, in, in Pennsylvania, what are you seeing as the Biden campaign's chances of winning that state? Well, I think we, we have a good chance of Delaware. I, I think he's got a good chance of winning Delaware. Pennsylvania actually is the state where uh, he was born as well as I was born. And I actually had an opportunity to actually visit uh, Philadelphia uh, twice this past week. And the excitement and the enthusiasm is there. Um, I went to one of the polling places, uh, one of the early uh, vote places, locations, and there was a line that literally stretched around the block, three sides of the, the city block of voters that were ready to vote, enthusiastic about voting, and um, even brought lawn chairs, um, you know, because they took Michelle Obama's advice and said, you know what, I'm wearing my comfortable shoes, I'm packing a chair and a lunch, and I'm here to vote and to do my civic duty and to vote in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So um, I, I think Pennsylvania is going to um, be a, a, a stellar win for us, um, and, but we're working as hard as we can. I mean, as, as to the very last minute, we're going to be working to make sure that every vote is cast and every vote is counted. I wanted to start with Pennsylvania because you're right. It would be quite surprising if Vice President Biden and Senator Harris did not win Delaware. But you brought up Philadelphia, a representative, yeah. and the death of a black man in a police shooting. How does that affect the presidential campaign in Philly, 
in Pennsylvania in the final few days here? Yeah, well, I had an opportunity uh, on behalf of the vice president to sit at a roundtable conversation with some community members, and it had been the morning after uh, the tragic passing of Walter Wallace. And I think, you know, first of all, it just points to the fact that um, we still have so much work to do as it pertains to the issues of policing, the issues of race, um, accountability and transparency. And, and, and really it also, um, you know, points to the fact that what Joe Biden has said from the very beginning is we support peaceful protest and people are marching because they want to see action. And I, I love the line that Kamala Harris always says that, you know, bad police are bad for good police. You know, bad cops are bad for good cops. And so the idea of being able to, on day one in this administration, look at the issues of justice and policing, just like Kamala has um, put forward a bill in the Senate, which we passed in the House, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, look at a commission that would actually um, delve deeply into these issues and address them. Unfortunately, we have a president right now that, you know, doesn't really want to deal with these issues. And, and, and what it does is it exacerbates and further adds fuel to the fire and does not cause the healing that we need. And so we need both healing and we need action. And we're unfortunately not getting it from this administration. If Vice President Biden wins the White House, what's the first legislative priority he should pursue in terms of that healing and that action you speak of? You know, well, as I just mentioned, he is calling for um, on, on day one to be able to focus on a commission that brings folks together to talk about how we address this systemically. How do we deal with these systemic issues of race? How do we deal with these systemic issues of justice? Um, and, and, you know, what I really appreciate, I've known Joe Biden for over 30 years um, as my senator, um, as our vice president, and now me as his congressperson. And he is a person who doesn't just talk about things. He wants to understand. He wants to um, constantly have things get better and improve. And so this being a priority um, is key. But as everyone else knows, the number one priority for this administration also is going to be getting this pandemic under control. And I think in the conversation that you had with Mr. Navarro, you know, it points to the challenge that we have, the, the contrast between these two candidates. You know, one wants to pretend that it doesn't exist and the other is saying we have to address it head on. The pandemic is so much connected to our economy, it's connected to jobs, it's connected to our physical and mental health, and it's connected to all of the trauma that we are all facing. And so What's he would be dealing on multiple tracks uh, on day one. Let's stick with the pandemic because yeah. President Trump in the closing days here is casting Vice President Biden as the nominee who will push for a shutdown of the country, another quote, lockdown of the country. What's your response to the president's pitch, his final appeal as the national co-chair of the Biden campaign? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is, even if you just look at how he's campaigning, the difference, the dichotomy, one is campaigning in a way that is still getting out there to the people in safe ways and in effective ways, but responsibly. 
The other is creating super spreader events, not encouraging people to wear masks, not following the science. And I think, you know, clearly the first thing we have to do is follow the science and listen to what the experts tell us. Uh, the President Trump is actually denigrating the scientists. Uh, it's important that we follow the science. The sooner that we can get the pandemic under control, the sooner that we can have a bright, vibrant economy. And so it's really important. They're, they're tied to each other. The health and well-being of our citizens is tied to the health and well-being of our economy. And so in a Biden administration, you would see a focus on getting the pandemic under control, everything from contact tracing, testing, treatment, um, and making sure that we have a vaccine that people can, can be confident in, to dealing with the Defense Production Act and finding ways that we can actually have states not competing against each other, but having a national comprehensive strategy. That, that's what's lacking with, with the Trump administration. It's everything is piecemeal and we need leadership. We need leadership from the top. Take me inside the Biden campaign, that Delaware inner circle. You're part of that political world in a deep way. The final few weeks of this campaign have been very rough, to say the least. President Trump has gone after Vice President Biden's um, mental acuity. He's gone after Vice President Biden's son, Hunter Biden and the family's uh, business relationships in the past. What has that been like? And do you believe Vice President Biden has said enough to defend himself? Yeah, you know, the in incredible thing about um, Joe Biden and this entire campaign, I've been there since day one. And I can tell you, um, I started off with a conversation with him before he decided to actually, uh, you know, announce, formally announce. And in that conversation, the things that he talked about, first of all, it was at the advent, it was right after Charlottesville happened. And so I think shaken to the core, it caused him to say, I, I will step up. I want to step up and be a part of uniting this country. But then as we went into the pandemic, it really became clear that, and he said it on that first debate stage, which I was actually in the audience. And I'll never forget, you know, he just looked at the camera and said, it's not about Trump's family is not about my family, it's about your family. And that's kind of been the anchor of everything that we do. How does this keep us safer as a country? Internationally, are we safer? Locally, are we safer? How can we be healthier as a nation, our economy and our physical and mental health? And then lastly, how can we be united? That's the focus. We don't pay attention to the name calling. We don't pay attention to, to the sleight of hand and, hey, look over here while we do this to you over there. We're laser focused on making sure that we, number one, win on Tuesday and that it be decisive. And that's my call to everyone. Please, please, please make sure that you and your family members and everybody you know are voting. And so that is number one. We must win. And secondly, it's really important that we govern. And I think that's what's been lacking. You know, it's one thing for you know, mm -hmm. the president to run for office, but you don't just run and you don't just run to that base of people that we were talking about earlier in, 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 in your interview. It is right. you become the president of the United States. And so that's the focus. It has been, you can talk about us, you can throw darts at us. This is about the people.
On that point of governing representative, do you approve or disapprove of the way Speaker Pelosi has handled the stimulus negotiations? Uh, let me tell you, I, I get to be on all of our caucus calls. I get to hear the just amount of work and energy and effort and the negotiating skills, but also her willingness to say, all right, we started here. Now, remember, we started with this HEROES Act maybe has it been five months now, it's been over a hundred days that we put forward a bold plan to be able to deal with the issues that are hurting the American people. We put that out there. We put out what needed to be done. And even Jerome Powell, the head of the, the you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve said, the risk of doing too much, I mean, of doing too little is greater than the risk of not doing enough. So that's number one. We're in an unprecedented time. Everybody's heard that word a thousand times. But it is true. And so the response needs to be big and bold. And I feel that the speaker has done a good job of advocating for the principles that we know that Americans need. We see Americans now on food lines. She's been fighting for food. That does, it doesn't make sense. We mm -hmm. see Americans wondering how are they going to be able to pay their rent? We put that in our legislation. The state and local governments, the fact that teachers, firefighters, paramedics, it is a need and we need to be bold. And so I um, am proud of our caucus and the work that we're doing. I, I really, unfortunately, the administration has even flip-flopped on whether they want it to be a big package or a small package or no package. Um, we need to get something done. And uh, I, I feel our caucus has done an incredible job fighting and advocating for the people. Your colleague in Congress, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, has been a Biden supporter like you from uh, for a long time. There's yeah. a lot of talk in Washington, based on my own, own reporting, that Senator Coons could end up in the Biden administration if Vice President Biden wins the White House in a cabinet slot or some kind of high-ranking post. That means he would have to leave the Senate. If he ever left the Senate in the coming year or so, would you run for his open seat? So, so, Bob, are you trying to do some breaking news story here or something like that? Um, I, I will tell Just you. Just looking for an all, answer, Chris, Representative. Okay, so first of all, Chris Coons is an incredible um, legislator as well as leader. Secondly, um, and my middle name is Blunt, so I don't have a problem being blunt about my, my intentions and, um, and, and what I'm focused on. I really am focused on Joe Biden getting elected. Um, I'm hopeful that I will be reelected by Delaware on Tuesday as well. And I worked really hard to get on the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, in, the, in the House and on four of those subcommittees. I'm on the Health Subcommittee. I'm on Energy and Climate Change. Um, uh, I'm also on uh, Consumer Protection and Commerce. And I believe that in a Biden administration, in my role in the Congress, and also as a whip, I'm actually a part of the whip operation with uh, Jim Clyburn that I could be very helpful on moving things like dealing with the pandemic and dealing with climate change, which are two of the biggest issues that we hear about. I'm also a person of faith. And um, as a person of faith, I, I, I'm always, um, I, I listen to, to go where you're called. Right now, the, the here thing I hear is bloom where you're planted. So um, my focus, my goal as national co-chair is to get Joe Biden elected and uh, hypotheticals are, are, are down the road. But uh, right now, my focus is to win 
Joe to win for my me to, to be win blunt though it seemed to be blunt to steal your 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 phrase right and name you go right ahead it seems like based on your answer you'd lean more towards staying in the house than mounting a senate campaign to be blunt what i'm saying is you go where you're called you go where you're needed ah you right go where you're called this okay. is where i'm needed this is where i'm needed and so i'm running for congress i'm hoping i'll win and okay. uh, you know let let let's deal with hypotheticals when they become realities. Right now, we need people to vote for Joe Biden. We need to win the White House and Kamala Harris. That's that's my blunt. That's my focus. That's all I care about. I appreciate anybody out there who's praying for me, mm -hmm. but otherwise, I'm focused on making sure Joe Biden wins. I will just note as a reporter to our audience, the representative did not did not rule anything out. But we'll leave it there, representative. Bob yeah, I'll, I'll have to come back on your on your show. You'll 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 have me back if if something. You better or, break or the news on this program, okay? <laughs> Look, Washington now, Post Live. Now, we get great ratings in Delaware. Wilmington loves that's us. That's okay. Well, that's where I am, Wilmington, and we do love you. We do love you, Bob. Thanks, right. and everybody. Iwillvote.com. Iwillvote.com. Make sure you have a plan. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.